Galatians chapter 6. We're going to read actually chapter 5, verse 26, down through chapter 6, verse 10. Here we go. This is the Apostle Paul writing. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else, for each one should carry his own load. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. This is God's word. So as I mentioned uh, a couple minutes ago, we are again uh, back in Paul's letter to the Galatians. We have two Sundays left in this letter. We're finally at chapter 6, and so we're going to finish up that letter after having a little bit of a break together uh, during Passion Week, uh, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter. Just a quick recap. The whole thrust of Paul's letter has been, up until this point, to drive home to us this very, very important truth, and that is you contribute nothing to your salvation. There is nothing that you can do ever to make yourself right with God, nothing that you can do ever to make God pleased with you. Rather, it is through relying on the finished work of Jesus Christ who lived the life that you should have died. In other words, the entire law of God, he obeyed perfectly on your behalf. And so when you believe in him, you trust in Jesus as your savior, then Jesus actually gives you his perfect record of obedience so that when God looks at you, he looks at you as though you have been perfectly obedient, even though you know you not, have not. And he also died the death you should have died, meaning you owe God for the sins that you have committed against him. You deserve his judgment. He should condemn you, but he condemned Jesus instead. And he does not condemn you because Jesus paid the penalty for you. I was talking with someone this week and we were talking about all this stuff. And the analogy I used there is when you go to a restaurant and you're eating with a few people and the bill comes and you stand up and you say, you pull out your credit card, you say, I got it covered. They have paid, they, they owe 10 bucks for their meal, but you pay for their meal, then, then, then you have fulfilled the obligations for them so that they don't have to fulfill them themselves. And that's what Jesus has done for us. Now, the last time we looked at Galatians, we said that this dynamic, Jesus living the life you should have lived, dying the death you should have died, this dynamic will affect the kind of person you are. It will shape your life 
your character because God's Holy Spirit will live in you and He will renovate your nature. If you are an angry person, if you are always saddled with guilt, if you are a person who deals with uh, addictions, if you are a person who struggles to forgive others, if you are a person who really is anxious all the time, God will, by His Holy Spirit, will, will empower and enable you as that truth sinks deeper into you. He will enable you to begin to deal with those problems in your life. Some of those problems are self-inflicted. They're the result of sin. Some of those problems are other-inflicted, meaning they come from outside of you. They're inflicted upon you, usually also still the result of sin. Either you're the perpetrator or the victor. You, victim, usually you're both on some level. But God will be at work in you to produce this fruit. That fruit is described in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That list is not comprehensive. It's, it's representative. But it's a great place to start as you look at your life and you wonder about yourself to ask yourself, am I loving? Am I... Uh, kind? Am I faithful? Am I gentle? Am I self-controlled? Anyhow, that's where we were. We're not going to go back to where we were and do it all again. Just going to remind you where we were. Here's where we're going. In chapter 6, Paul starts talking about how the gospel dynamic should not just change you individually, but it should change community. How we behave with each other, one another, as a body, especially, he says, in the church. So in chapter 6, Paul's focus moves from sort of uh, individual uh, uh, implications of the gospel to corporate implications of the gospel. And so what we're going to do is we're going to unpack what Paul means by that. You notice in verse 1 of chapter 6, he says, brothers... Da, 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 da. He calls them brothers. It's an inclusive term for brothers and sisters, meaning... Anybody who is a follower of Jesus Christ, who has put their trust in Him, they are adopted into God's family, which means you, even if you're not a blood relative of another Christian, you are an adopted brother or sister of that other Christian. You are a spiritual family because we're all adopted by God. Now, that's great and all, but we all know <laughs> families can be dysfunctional. And probably on some level, your own family is representative of that dysfunction, right? So hearing, maybe when you hear, oh, the church is supposed to be like a family, that does not make you go, yay. That makes you go, uh-oh, right? But don't forget, okay? Don't forget. The church, yes, can be dysfunctional too. And if you've spent any time, any length of time in a church, you know that all churches are dysfunctional on some level. But here's... Here's the good news. If the Holy Spirit is in you and the Holy Spirit is in you and the Holy Spirit is in me because we are followers of Jesus Christ, that means the Holy Spirit is in us corporately as a community. And so we together have God's divine power among us and in us to enable us to overcome our dysfunction. Just like you're an individually dysfunctional person, but the Holy Spirit enables you to overcome and overpower your dysfunction in the same way corporately we may be a dysfunctional bunch. We're a young bunch. We're not an old church. But it's amazing how dysfunctional you can be like right off the bat. You just put a bunch of people together 
and dysfunction happens, but the Holy Spirit enables and empowers us to overcome our dysfunction as well. So what we're going to do here is we're going to look at what Paul says the family of God should look like. What are characteristics of the family of God? And there's a lot in chapter 6, and there's a number of different ways we could break it down. What I've decided to do is just tease out three main characteristics of the family of God and drill down into those rather than hit all six or seven or eight that are in this passage and just sort of say two things about them. We're going to drill down into several because the principles that apply there are translatable to these other relationships and issues. So hopefully you can transfer those principles over to those issues, even if we're not talking about them this morning. Do you get what I'm saying? Okay. Here we go. You have the outline somewhere in this massive bulletin. Last page. What do gospel relationships look like? What does it look like to be in the church? How should the church function? First of all, look at verse 1. Here's the first thing. Paul says, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Okay. What's Paul talking about? When you hear this phrase in the church... When someone is caught in a sin, what image pops into your mind? I bet for some of you at least, the image that pops in your mind is like, there's the pastor maybe hiding behind a bush, and you walk by, and he's got his eye on you, and you do something wrong, and he jumps out and goes, aha, you've been caught in a sin, right? A lot of people have this sense of like, that's what the church is like. That the church is a place where the morality police are always on the lookout for you. And they're going to catch you and they're going to give you a ticket. They're like like when when the cops have set up a speed trap. And inevitably, if you see them, they've already seen you. And it's too late if you've been speeding, right? So we, we get this impression of, of maybe that's kind of what the church is like. And unfortunately, the church maybe has worked that way at times in the past. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. This word caught that he uses, it has the sense of being overtaken. It's the idea that, that, that someone is caught in a pattern of sinful behavior, in a, in a way, in, almost in a sense that they've been, they're being controlled by it, and they cannot overcome this sin on their own. They are, they are caught in its clutches. They are trapped. They are captured, so to speak. And so Paul is not saying that every instance where you see someone sin, oh, you need to restore that person. In fact, Peter says that love covers a multitude of sins. There's there's slights that happen. There are small ways that people sin against you that happen that you ought to be able to overcome. And you overcome them by allowing love to cover that sin. But... When a person is caught in a pattern of sin, when a person is struggling with almost an addiction to some kind of sin, when they can't overcome it themselves, Paul says, when you see that in the church, you need to restore them gently. And that word restore is a very, very interesting word. Literally, that word means to set a bone. To set a bone. Have you ever dislocated something? Uh, I have not, but I've heard extremely painful. When I was in university, there was a guy uh, 
a student there who played on the basketball team who had a bad shoulder, and every now and then he would dislocate his shoulder. And it was awful. Like, it would pop or something, and then it would drop, right? And then he would be in absolute agony. And you would see him. He would stumble to the weight room, and he would grab the head, pull it up, and put it on a bench. And then he would grab it with his bad shoulder, and then he would, he would literally let his arm fall, and then he would go like that, and that's how he knocked it back in. Yeah, well, yeah, funny if it's not you, I suppose. Um, now, from what I hear, you dislocate something, it's extremely painful. But to put it back into place, as I witnessed with this basketball player, is extremely painful as well. Okay? And I've heard that the same can be true when you have to set a bone. Like when a bone is out of place, it's been broken and it's out of place, and you need to move it to back where it's supposed to be in order to be, to be straightened, that, that can be incredibly painful. But here's the thing. That's a, a pain that ultimately leads to relief. Returning that, that dislocated shoulder or setting that bone can be incredibly painful, but it... But it is meant to lead to relief. And Paul's saying here that when you go to restore someone, the idea is, is that perhaps it's going to hurt. If you have to confront them in their sin, if you have to, to point out their sin, if you have to draw their attention to their sin, it can be painful, but it's meant to be a healing pain, to put the heart back into place, to, to reorient it in the right position. Now, understand something they're in pain already. See, I've talked to a lot of people. They come to me and they say, I've got a family member or a friend or a whatever who's in trouble and I don't know what to do about it. And I say, well, it sounds to me like you're, you're dealing with a person who needs to be confronted and they don't want to do it. And they say, I don't want to hurt them. And what we need to understand, friends, and have deeply rooted in our minds and our hearts is that sin, being caught in sin, is extremely damaging First of all, it's, if it's unrepentant sin, if it's sin that a person is just living in and wallowing in and relishing in, it can, it can lead to eternal separation from God. It is eternally significant. It's serious. And very often, sinful patterns destroy relationships and they destroy yourself. So this person is already in pain. This person you don't want to hurt is already hurting and we need to keep that in mind. But Paul says, restore them gently. There's some implications here that we get to draw out, first of all. Here's the first one. If the church is going to be the church and do what Paul says when someone is caught in a sin, the first thing we need to realize is, is that we have to let people in. You've got to let people in. I got to let people in, meaning we have to become vulnerable and open and honest with each other. This is so ridiculously countercultural, okay? I was talking about it at the membership class the other, just yesterday. You know, the church is supposed to be a place. It is supposed to be a place where you let people be all up in your business. And every time I say it, I get a chuckle, so I'm going to keep going because I love cheap laughs you got to let people get into your business. You know, what's fascinating about uh, some of these, what, what are called self-help groups or, or uh, support groups, um, many of them are surrounding addictions, right? Like 
uh, AA or CA or whatever, but some of them are support for, let's say, cancer survivors or you've had a loved one that passed away, a grief share group or whatever. They understand that the only way you get anywhere in one of these groups is you've got to be open and honest with others. And you've got to give them permission to speak into your lives. The church is supposed to be a place where everybody who's a member of it and a, like a believer in God and in Jesus, it's supposed to be a place where everybody has already admitted, I'm screwed up. I'm a sinner. That's why I'm here. I've already gone past that point where I have to be honest and open that I'm a mess. That's why I came to church in the first place, because I found finally in Jesus Christ someone who can deal with that. Then why do we then start walking around in church communities pretending that we've got our stuff together? That's the first implication. We've got to be open and vulnerable with one another. But here's the second one is, is you've got to be willing to get involved with one another. You've got to be willing to step into each other's lives. Look, we, again, extremely countercultural, right? We don't want to get into each other's lives. First of all, it's inconvenient for me to know that you're struggling. If I find out that you're having problems in your marriage and then I got to start going out for coffee and listening to you talk about how hard it is and stuff and then I like get worried about it and then I got to go home and I'm laying in bed and I should be sleeping but I can't because I'm thinking about you, just don't tell me. That's part of it, right? The other part of it is, is we think, you know, well, it's not my place. It's not my place. But this is what we're called to in the church. Third implication is, of course, gentleness requires patience and wisdom. It is easy to be harsh. It's easy to respond and speak into someone's problems without really thinking about it. I, you know, just major conviction time. I don't have any kids here today, so I can really talk about them. Um, you know, I can't tell you to be open and vulnerable and not be honest about my own stuff. So, confession time. When my kids screw up, my natural inclination is to just hit them with something quick. You did this, don't ever do it again, blah, 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 go to your room, give me your iPod, you're grounded for the weekend, and be done with it. And I know why. Because it's inconvenient for me to have to actually try to disciple and shepherd my child. Now I have to sit here and I have to go, okay, what's the best way for me to deal with this? Paul, turn off the TV and think about how's the best way to parent your child through this situation. And my natural inclination is not to do that. We need to be like good doctors. A good doctor listens to the symptoms of their patient thinks through what the diagnosis is. Once they come to a diagnosis, they plan a treatment, and then they carefully follow that treatment plan in the hopes of addressing the specific problem. A surgeon doesn't slap you down on the table and go, I hear he's got pain in his side, and just start going, looking in there, where is that thing? Anyway, no, he thinks it through. 
And he makes sure the cuts are where they're meant to be, and that takes time. It's just so much easier to just go boom and be done with it. If you're a person who values comfort and autonomy and are, you're self-centered like me. And so here we are in this church where God is calling us to do radically re- impossible things. And he knows that. He knows that. Why do you think Paul says in verse 1, he also says, but watch yourself or you also may be tempted. In other words, he says you need to be, be self-aware, aware, okay? You need to admit that you can do this too. What am I getting at? You will never be helpful in the life of another person until you are able to admit that you are just as spiritually weak as they are. The worst thing that you can do is think that you, don't, you are not susceptible to the same problems. Because then you come off as having this kind of air of superiority. You don't think about the complexities of their problem. You just speak very simply and basically into it. Like, for example, let's say, let's say there's someone you know who's got money problems. And as you sit and listen to them, you hear, it pre, comes pretty obvious to you that their money problems are self-induced. Okay? They've got a problem with spending or, 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 or something like that. And if you think to yourself, well... I would never do that. I don't have any problems with money. I mean, I'm, it's all it takes is a bit of discipline and just say no, to the, say no to the dress instead of yes to the dress or whatever it is. You should be fine. And if you try to speak into that person's life, you will come off as arrogant, as a know-it-all. And you might even be right. You might even be correct. You might even be bang on with your diagnosis of their problem, but they don't hear a word of it. And you've accomplished nothing. And by the way, when Paul says, you who are spiritual, you know, he says in verse 1, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. He's not talking about the super Christians in the room. Paul is just talking about followers of Jesus Christ, people who live by the Spirit. It's not just for the leadership. It's not just for the office bearers. It's for all of us. All Christians are people who are called to live by the Spirit. Therefore, all people are called to speak into one another's lives. If anyone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore them gently. That's the first thing. Second thing, in a church, what else do you see? Well, in verse 2, Paul says this, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If you go up to chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says the law of Christ is this, love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. How do we do that? We carry each other's burdens. Paul is talking about suffering here, right? And it's a beautiful image that he invokes, carry each other's burdens. Think about this. If you see someone who is suffering under a crushing weight, how do you help them? You see someone who's got a big stone slab on top of them, and they're, they're being suffocated because of it. What do you do? You have to come over, and you have, to, you have to get as close as you can and lift that weight 
take on that weight onto your shoulders in order for them to, to get some breathing room. You have, to, you have to almost get in their shoes. Have you ever real the word understand comes from stand under, okay? So you have to get close. So a suffering, you know, the first thing that you got to do with a suffering person is, is you need to listen and listen and listen as they share, as they unpack, as they, they bear their soul, what they're dealing with, what they're, what they're struggling with. You need to listen and, and learn to empathize, to feel what they feel and see what they see and then speak back into that and let them know that you're, you're starting to understand. Have you ever had that? Have you ever had someone, have you ever been down, struggling, suffering, and women are much better at this than men, by the way. You sit with a friend, and you just bleh, and they just sit there, and they say, I understand, babe, I'm dear, sweetheart, friend, buddy. I'm so sorry. And it actually lifts your spirits just knowing that they get it. Have you ever experienced that? That's, that's the first point. That's a huge thing. That's the first point that Paul is, is covering here. But there's more to it than that. You've got to do more than just listen. Paul says, you must suffer. And this is the part we don't like. Listening and then going home afterwards, that's not so bad. But Paul is saying you've got to suffer. See, to carry, to carry each other's burdens, it doesn't mean to take it all so that now they're not carrying their burden at all, but it does mean to share it. You have to share their burden. You have to take some of the weight of their burden. And in order to do that, it's going to cost you. There is no way around this. If you say, I can't afford the time, or I can't afford the financial burden, or whatever. What you're saying is, is I don't want the inconvenience. I do not want to bear this burden. I don't want to carry it. To carry, look it, you carry anything, and it limits you. If I carry a box and walk out of here, I can't run as fast as I could without the box. I can't grab other things because I've got the box. It limits you. When you carry the burden of another, when you step into their suffering, you necessarily limit yourself necessarily, because you are going to carry emotional pain. You are going to carry perhaps physical pain. You may carry financial pain. You will carry spiritual pain. You will carry the burden of having that person in your life. You will. There's just absolutely no way around it. Of course, you're not supposed to take it all on because then you might get crushed yourself and now nobody's carrying anything. You're just both being crushed together. <laughs> but you've got to carry something. How do we love enough to have the strength to lovingly speak into one another's lives and also the strength to be willing to bear the cost of carrying each other's burdens? And the answer is you have to go back to the gospel and you have to remember the work of Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 53... These words are spoken by the prophet over a thousand years before Jesus came and ministered. Or no, sorry, that's not true. Around 800 years before Jesus came and lived and died. It says this about Jesus Christ. 
Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. There's one burden that you must never, ever, ever try to carry yourself. And that's the burden of salvation. It's the burden of your own salvation, but it's also the burden of other people's salvation. Some of us, sometimes, we go deep into other people's suffering. And we go deep into other people's suffering, potentially for the wrong reason. We go deep into the, into the suffering of, of another because we're trying to fix them. We're trying to take their pain away. We're trying to deal with their problem. We're trying to save them, and we can't. There's only one Savior, and He's already done it. And once you have a, that rooted deep in your heart, you'll be able to protect yourself from trying to become anyone's Messiah. And at the same time, however... We can sometimes do it because we think that if we can improve someone's life, if we can make things better for them, then God is happier with me. You know, the more I suffer for others, the happier God is with me. You know, sometimes moms can get sucked into this. You know, they, 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 they feel that if they, can, if they can protect their children from pain and suffering and take it on themselves and avoid that kind of thing, then God will be pleased with, their, with, their, with, with who they are, not just as a parent, but who they are. I'm sure dads can have this too, but I mean, my wife and I, we talk about this, and she says, that's more my tendency, and I'm heartless, so I'm like, whatever. It's their problem. So in our house, anyway, it's more her tendency than mine. But friends, Jesus Christ is the only Savior for anyone, for those children that you love so dearly and you cherish and you are working so hard to point them to Jesus and you are working so hard to give them the best education and to give them the grit that they need to go out and make something of themselves in the world and you're trying to send them off with every advantage and all that kind of stuff, you got to realize you can't save your kid. There's only one person who can save your kid. If you're trying to save your spouse... If you're trying to save your parents, it doesn't matter who you're trying to save. Don't take the burden. Don't take the burden of salvation upon your own shoulders. His are easily big enough to take them, and yours most certainly not. Okay, last thing. Last thing, verses 9 and 10. Doing good. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of faith. This is what the gospel life is all about. This is what the church is all about. It's not about meetings. It's not about running programs. After program, after program, after program. You know what? It's not even about conversions. Getting people to pray the sinner's prayer and stand up and be baptized. Some, very often that's what we think it's about. That's not what it's for, primarily about. It's about this. It's about doing good to the person in front of you. Doing good means serving their needs. 
It means looking out for their best interest. Doing good. And notice that Paul says, look at, he says, uh, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest of joy. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. He says, as we have opportunity. Paul is not calling Grace Valley Church, or any church, frankly, to do good to everybody. He's calling us to do good to the people right in front of us. Yes, to your children. Yes, to your parents. Yes, to your colleagues. Yes, to your friends. Yes, to to your business partner. Yes, to all these people, yes, who are right in front of you. We go off to do mission trips in developing countries for a week, and I'm not saying that that's that's wrong, but if that's what you do, if that's your doing good, you spend a week in Haiti, and then you come back, and you go around just living your life, not looking out for the interests of others, you're missing Paul's call on the church. I hope I didn't just... Notice I said, there's nothing wrong with doing that. It's if that's all you're doing, okay? Somebody's just like, oh, I just paid my deposit for a mission trip in Haiti. It's like yesterday, I was, I was encouraging potential members, if you're serious about Grace Valley, consider living in Dundas. It's a sacrifice, you know, because it costs a lot to live in this town. So your house might be smaller, your yard might be smaller, but for the sake of the calling and the mission, consider making the sacrifice to live in Dundas. And then one couple came up to me and said, oh, we just bought a house in Brantford. <laughs> and I didn't want to make them feel guilty, but I did. Um, anyhow, to those right under our noses, Paul calls us to be good to them to, and, and to be good to all people. You don't pick and choose. He sends the people that we are called to be good to. We don't get to decide whether they're the deserving needy or the kind of needy that we were looking for. They're the ones right in front of us, okay? And then he says, especially to the family of believers or other translations call, call it the household of faith. He means, Paul means that we're responsible for each other. You know, char- you've heard the statement, charity begins at home, Right? That's what Paul is getting at here. He means that we've got to be on the lookout for ways to love one another and and do good to one another. Two quick implications about that, and then we're done. First is, that means, friends, you've got to be open to receive. You've got to be open to receive. There is so much pride in the church. There is. We like, it is better to give than to receive, but Jesus didn't mean it's better to give than to receive because when you're giving, then you don't feel like you're taking charity so you feel good about yourself. He meant you reap the harvest of joy when you give sacrificially out of yourself. That's what he meant. But in the church, oftentimes, we are unwilling to receive because that means weakness, that means we have to face our failure or our our lack of resources or whatever. And we don't want to admit that. How silly. How silly. Think about it. Everything you have, you say, is a gift of God's grace. Well, why are you willing to take everything from Him as a gift of His grace, but then when someone else says to you, look, I know you're having some financial trouble, let me help you out right now, you say, no, 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 I can't. It's still from Him and a gift of His grace. So you've got to be willing to, to receive, but then... 
the second implication is, is that this is our job. Sometimes in, the modern, in our modern context, we have professionalized almost everything, okay? An expert has to do everything. And sometimes we do that in the church, too. We think it's the pastor's job to do X, or it's the leadership's job to do X, or it's the, the, the staff's job to do X. But friends, if you have a friend who's having a marriage crisis... Don't just call me and say, so-and-so is having a marriage crisis. You should go talk to them. Go talk to them. Sit down with them. Remember, these principles aren't that hard. Most of the time, what they just need is your ear, your understanding, your willingness to carry the burden with them. Okay? Paul says, if your friend is caught in a sin, you should restore him gently. Don't offload the responsibility. And then lastly, notice what Paul says. At the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. It requires sacrifice, okay? It requires choosing to limit yourself, your own individual freedom and autonomy, or the, or the freedom and autonomy of your family unit or whatever is limited by these things. Let's say, simple example, you've got a, a neighbor with a kid who never gets to go on vacation because their parents are poor, and that kid is friends with one of your kids, and you go camping two or three weekends out of, the, out of the summer, you take that kid along to camp with you and your family for one of those weekends or two of those weekends, and it cramps your style because, you know, they're, they can be a little bit cranky or they don't get your family rules and they, they act out a little bit, and sometimes your kids, maybe their language gets a little more colorful for a few days than it normally is, and it cramps your style. It costs. Yes, it costs. There's just no way around it. But, but, Paul says at the proper time, it reaps a harvest that far outweighs it. Is the, when you plant a seed, it takes work to plant that seed in your garden, but the, but the harvest makes it worth it. Imagine if you are walking on the streets of Jerusalem in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, and you've been walking there for already about uh, 500 million years, and you haven't met this person yet, but this kid that used to go on vacation with you, and they are cranky about all the food that you would try to serve them because they're really picky about it, and they always wanted to stay up later than, than you would send your kids to bed too, and they were always saying, we want a campfire, we want a campfire. Every night they wanted a campfire, and... <laughs> You just found them a little bit irritating and annoying, but you swallowed it, and you loved on this kid anyway because you knew that they didn't have that kind of support at home. And there they are, walking on the streets of Jerusalem 500 million years from now. And they look so beautiful that if, if, if Jesus wasn't there, you'd want to worship them. And they come up to you and they say, you know what? One of the reasons I'm here is because of you. Because you took me camping. Because you were nice to me. Because you showed me the love of Jesus. And you say, hey, let's go take a 10,000 year walk around the lake together and talk. <laughs> and they say, I'd love that. Got to have a cosmic global picture of it all, friends. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for calling us to be something greater than we could ever be on our own. 
empower and enable us to be that so that you would be glorified in this world. For that is our greatest desire. In Jesus' name, amen.